All right, good evening, everybody. Tonight we're going to be in 2 Corinthians, chapters 4 and 5, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. This Friday night um, at 6.30, they're doing their chili supper fundraiser for um, the Breaking Chains concert that's coming up. Um, that'll be, um, I guess, all the chili you can eat, right? So anyway, come on by for that and join them. Um, I think it's donations. Where's John? Oh, okay. It is free will. Okay, it's free will offering, so you could really eat for free if you wanted to. So it's probably not the point. Anyway, February 9th, then, the next Friday at 7 p.m. at the Bridge Church here in town, right behind McDonald's there. Um, the Stillness Concert, the worship night, is going to be there. So um, join them for that at 7 o'clock. Um, so those are the two things that are up and coming. All right, 2 Corinthians, Paul's. Wonderful second letter, um, a joyful letter for him to write. Um, he's excited that they received his first letter with, uh, um, well, with humility, and they took it, and uh, they, they applied it, and it worked, and it's a wonderful thing. And so Paul is writing him the second letter from that, knowing that. Now, he's, he's had to um, do some more correcting in the sense that he's trying to uh, let them know that he's still a good guy. You know, he's still the same guy that started their church. Um, but uh, um, he, he does it in a great way here just to explain to them that he's not trying to promote himself. He just wants to be obedient to the calling upon his life. And so um, he continues with that same thought here in verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. He's going to say that twice. That's the first time he says it. And let me, let me help with getting rid of that parenthetical statement so we understand his heart. Therefore, we do not lose heart. He doesn't lose heart because, first of all, he's been given a ministry from God, which he reiterated or uh, enforced last week, um, and he's received mercy, and he knows that. And that's always important, that we remember that we've received mercy, not just grace. Grace is great, but we've received, we've received mercy from our God. And that's what brings humility. That's what brings a love. Um, for our God and for service to him. That's what ministry means, service. And Paul understood that. I've been given by God this service to you. Um, and I've also received from God this mercy from him. And so I don't lose heart. A lot of things can go on in our lives that can try to cause us to lose heart. But if we keep our minds focused and our hearts focused on what Paul's about to share with us in chapters 4 and 5, we don't lose heart. We can't lose heart because it's not dependent upon those things. If my eyes are fixed on those things, though, if I'm looking around me at today and the people or whatever it is that comes my way, you can easily lose heart. But Paul keeps his eyes upward. He keeps his eyes on God. I've been given a, a service to him. I, I serve God, a job, a mission, a work of God. And I do that. And he's going to explain through these next two chapters that eventually, and I'm going to, spoiler alert, I'm going to see God, and he's going to talk to me about this work that he gave me and about this mercy that he gave me. And it's a, it's a, it's a judgment seat that I get to stand before, and we all do. And that's why I don't lose heart. But he wants him to know that. Corinthians, I don't lose heart. Even though you may have lost faith in me, I'm not asking to have faith in me. I'm asking to have faith in God. And I don't lose heart, he says. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, 
not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. In other words, we've left our reputation in your hands and in your minds. We can't do anything about how you feel about us. That's up to you. All we can do is not handle God's word with deceitfulness or craftiness. We're just going to tell you the plain old truth. Tell you exactly what it says. The hard truth is hard to tell, but it's necessary to tell, you know. Um, I got some advice from um, uh, Seth's new father-in-law. He's a broker. And I was like, I don't know about some of this stuff. You know, I don't, I'm not, I don't, I got some questions about this. And uh, he gave me some really good hard truth. He says, your, your people, your client needs to hear the hard truth. They've been, they've been duped. They've been deceived for 280 days. No one stopped and told them the hard truth about the actual value of their property. You need to tell them the hard truth. You need to have that hard conversation with them. The people are starving for hard truth. And I went, okay. And so I, I let them know, here's the deal. You're way, way high. You're way high on your, call, on your price. It's just not going to happen. Everything around you is selling for way, way less. And got to explain it to them, and they, and they received it. They're like, oh, thanks. Thanks. We needed to know that. Yeah, so do this, do that, or the other thing. I was like, wow. So I, I, I emailed him back. I said, thank you. That went a lot easier and a lot better than I thought. He goes, truth's truth, man, whether that's, a, whether that's coming out of the Bible or whatever. Truth, you got to share truth. I went, oh. I mean, I know that. But being a new guy in this field, I don't know. I don't know what I'm supposed to say, you know, and what I'm not supposed to say, you know. And it really helped to hear that. And so the hard truth, Paul says, I'm going to share that. I'm not going to. I've renounced the hidden things of shame. I'm going to handle God's word not with deceitfulness or craftiness, but in truth. And then I'm going to commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. It's up to them. Whether they hate the truth coming out of my mouth or whether they love the truth coming out of my mouth, but that's going to be up to them. I'm going to leave it in their hands. I leave my reputation in their hands. But even if our gospel is veiled, he says, even if it is concealed, he's not saying that it is, but even if it is, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is in the image of God, should shine on them. Paul's not concerned about those that aren't seeing. I mean, he is. He has a love for them. All he can do, though, is shine. The veil has to be lifted. The blindness has to be taken away, and the blindness comes from Satan. He's the God of this world. He's the one that blinds the eyes of people so that they don't want to or don't see. That's up to them. There's been different times in my life, I know that for the most part, I think that's true for everybody, you know, 95% of my life I haven't seen the gospel presented every single day, every single moment. There's just been brief moments where I've stepped in, or he's stepped in, and I've seen. You know, I, I, I remember those moments where the veil was lifted for a brief moment, and I could actually see and I could feel and understand the word, the gospel, Jesus, the Lord. I knew he was there. And those moments were opportunities for me to believe. And if I didn't believe, that veil came right back over my eyes, and it'd take maybe a year and a half later before the next opportunity came along. I don't know how that works, but I see it as an explanation to the sovereignty of God moving 
allowing us opportunities, and then the free will of man during those opportunities to choose. I wouldn't make a, a, you know, a dogma out of it or a doctrine out of it, but that is what he's saying here. He says, if, if there's a veil, if people can't see or hear what I'm sharing with them, the only people that are, that are like that are those um, whose minds of the, the God of this age has blinded. We know that Satan's blinding them. Who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Do you, you see that thought that he has there? If they believed, the light of the gospel would shine. So they don't believe, so the light of the gospel doesn't shine. There's something there. It's a mystery, I think. I think it's a lot deeper than we could probably cover tonight. But there's a, there's a responsibility on my part to believe, and then there is an action that follows that belief that shines and eradicates the darkness in my life. There's a believing that has to take place first, Paul says right here. We must believe, then that light shines through, which means we can. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. And ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. That's, that's what we say about ourselves. When we preach, we preach Jesus is the Lord. And when we do talk about ourselves, we say we're bondservants for Jesus' sake. That's the order and that's how it comes across. And always has, Paul says. Now he's contrasting himself with the people that are currently teaching at their church. They don't go that route. They preach themselves. They talk about the vessel. They look at the person, the persona, uh, the dress, the attire. Um, the vessel itself, what does it look like? It's painted and porcelain and pretty and shiny. And then, yeah, yeah, Jesus. And Paul's making a, a stark contrasting. Look, we don't do that. We talk about Jesus and we know what we look like. Paul knows he's ugly, you know? Paul knows he's a man. Paul knows he's an earthen vessel. But Paul sees that as a benefit. He's going to explain that here. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of, Christ, of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that all the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Paul sees his hooked nose and his squeaky voice and his funny appearance and his weepy eyes as an opportunity for God to get all the glory. We never want to forget that. As a, as a vessel, as an earthen vessel, I, I don't want to get glazed and uh, painted and work on the polish. All that matters is what is contained in the heart. The vessel can be rough. The vessel can be ugly. The vessel just has to perform a function, and that is to be waterproof, basically. <laughs> just contain Christ and pour him out when needed. You can, you can do a lot to a wine bottle. You can make a lot of, you know, that, that's the marketing technique. How do I get people to want to buy this bottle of wine? You know, the label's got to look just so, and it's got to be just they. But the real connoisseurs, the real folks that know wine and the flavor of it and have gone to school and understand all this stuff, they're interested in what's inside the bottle. They're not duped by the, the foil on the outside, you know. They know the vintage. They know what's important is the flavor, the taste, the body, all of it, the nuances. They appreciate all that. Paul understands that. Talk about a connoisseur. He goes, I don't, who cares about the vessel? 
It's that beautiful wine. That's why when Jesus made that water to wine, how important it was that nobody said, wow, those vessels are really full. Those vessels are really glittery or really shiny or really beautiful. No, the, the master of the, of the feast, the, the head honcho said, you've saved the best wine for now. This is amazing wine. And that's what Christ does to us, for us, in us, through us. That's what he's saying. This light that God commanded to come out of darkness did the same thing for us. Light is shining out of us. And here's what we do. We give knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This treasure's in earthen vessels. And that's for the excellency of the power might be of God and not of us. It's a subtle way of telling the Corinthians, you guys have you've grabbed for something shiny. And it's not good for you. It's causing harm. You need to grab what's good. Look for what's best. Yeah, there might be a lot of programs. Yeah, there might be a lot of pizzazz and shine and lights and fog or whatever it is that causes you to get emotionally excited or stimulates you physically or stimulates you um, fleshly, anyway. But what's good for your heart? What's good for your soul? What's good for your spirit? Uh, you know, um, Pastor Chuck's the one that's always, that, that's the one that, he's the one that, got me, you know. He's the one God used. And he's, he was overweight. He was bald. He was twice my age. And he just got up there and opened the Bible and just read it and taught it. That's all he did. And I ate it up. The difference was he was filled with the Spirit. It was amazing. Um, he was so not the issue that all we heard whenever you sat down, was God's word. That's all you heard. That's amazing. That's something to aspire to um, um, and try for. It's hard to do <laughs> without the Spirit. It's hard to, to be like that. And, um, but that's, the, that's what you want. You know? When you're ministering to anybody on the street or ministering to anybody in private conversations or whatever, um, it isn't how loud I am or how fast I am with my verses or it's being anointed by the Holy Spirit and allowing him to just flow out of you. It's what you contain that changes people's lives. Not how you present it. Not the timing of it. It's what you contain. Jesus is good anytime. Jesus is worthwhile anytime and he's always the right answer. He's always right. You know, and Paul knew that. And he says, I'm so glad that we don't look like those guys do that you guys have there now because God's not getting glory from them. They're getting the glory and it's not good. Here's how he describes himself. He says, verse eight, we, Timothy and the guys that are with Paul, are hard pressed on every side, yet we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. There's a reason he's making this list, and we'll talk about it in verse 12. Always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. He has to make this list is because those were the accusations made about him. 
If they're so great, if Paul's so great, how come he's always hard-pressed? If Paul's so great, why is he always perplexed? And how come he's persecuted so much and struck down? Now, we're not. That's the idea. He says, we may be hard-pressed, but we're not crushed. Don't you see how God spares us from getting crushed? God never says we're not going to go through trials and tribulations. He just says he'll protect us from absolute annihilation during those times. Until it's time to be taken home to be with the Lord. We may be perplexed at times, but we're not in despair because we don't know or because we're iffy about the situation. We're just perplexed, but we're not in despair. We may be persecuted, but we're not forsaken by God. God hasn't left us just because we're persecuted. That's not, that's not the... Uh, that's not the measuring stick for success. If you were truly a Christian, you wouldn't be persecuted. Well, that's not what Jesus said. He said that if we are followers of his, if we're believers of his, if we're children of his, then we will suffer persecution. Anybody that desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will. We may be struck down. And that happened to Paul a lot. That guy was beat everywhere he went, but he was never, what? He was never destroyed. At one point, they thought they destroyed him, but he wasn't destroyed. Always caring about, we, Paul says, are always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our bodies. Every time we got beat down and rose up again, God got glory for it. Paul wasn't embarrassed about that or ashamed of that. He counted that as a badge, a badge of honor, we carry around the dying of the Lord Jesus. Our marks on our flesh are similar to the marks on his flesh. I mean, when you study Jesus' life, you know most people now when you talk about Jesus and don't say that he's God, but you just talk about him as Jesus, a great teacher or a master or whatever he was, most people agree with everything he did and they think he's a wonderful person, a wonderful man, until you call him God, come in the flesh, and that's when things get funny. But even at that, if you ask that person to look and examine Jesus' life and how much he got beat and persecuted compared to the others that they may think are equal to him or of um, you know, even greater value than Jesus, just even better masters, whether that's worshiping the Buddha or whatever. When they look at that, look at the persecution he suffered. Why? If he was such a great guy, why did he suffer such persecution? You have to ask yourself, what is the difference between these folks? It's because he spoke the truth, and he called himself God come in the flesh. That's the difference. And Paul says, we do the same thing. That's why we're beat. That's why we're persecuted. That's why we're hard-pressed. That's why we're perplexed at times. It's because we talk about Jesus as God come in the flesh, and that's why we get whipped. That's why we get stoned. When we talk about the resurrection from the dead, that's when we get beat down. Talk about looking on the bright side of things, you know. That's how Paul looked at his life. We're hard-pressed, but we're not crushed. <laughs> you know, we're perplexed, but we're not in despair. That'd be bad. What an example for us. Verse 13, and since we have the same spirit of faith, According to what is written, I believe and therefore I, sp I spoke. He's quoting Psalm 116.10. Um, since we have that same spirit, we also believe and therefore speak. We can't help but speak. When we hear the truth, when God showed us the truth, when we believed on him, we have to tell people about it. There's, there's nothing we can do about it. 
knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise up with Jesus, uh, raise us up with Jesus, and will pr present us with you. He's working his way towards uh, the end goal. Do you understand why we don't lose heart? We don't lose heart because God's given us this ministry or this work of his, and he's shown us mercy. And we don't get worried about these things because this is what's about to happen. They're always looking for heaven. They've got their eyes focused on that. Because eventually, he says, when we speak, if we were to die today or if we were to die 20 years from now, it doesn't matter when we die, we're going to get raised up with Jesus. And he's given us the Spirit as a proof of that. For all, all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. We're glad for that. Therefore, there it is again, we do not lose heart. And so don't you lose heart, is what he's telling them. Maybe that's why they started grabbing these other teachers. Maybe that's why they started looking at vessels and trying to look prettier for the world. Maybe they began to lose heart because Paul's always beat down and it's kind of embarrassing to say, my teacher's in prison again. When's, when's Paul coming by? When he gets out of prison? That must have been embarrassing for them after a while. And so they had these other Christians come by and they'd say, well, why don't you teach? You're not in prison. You're never in prison. You're always available, you know. And he says, don't lose heart that we're in prison. Don't lose heart that we bear in our bodies the marks of Christ and his sufferings. Don't lose heart that the person who started your church is that low in the eyes of the world. Don't lose heart. We don't. Even though our outward man is perishing, and it was, yet the inward man, is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Don't get caught up in the temporary. My hooked nose, my weepy eyes, my squeaky voice, me being in prison. Don't, you know, barely able to get out of bed in the morning. Without Dr. Luke, I don't think, you know, in his chiropractic skills, I'm making that up, it doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible, but he did have a physician that came along with him just to get him back up every day. Apply salve maybe to all the whip marks he received that night. He says, I don't even think about this stuff. They're just, they're whipping something that's temporary, but inwardly my heart, my, my spirit, which is eternal, is changing and I'm being conformed into his image. So much time is spent on our temporary. If we'd spend just as much time working about our spiritual diet as we do our physical diet, our spiritual exercise versus our physical exercise, you know. Imagine if I worked out as long with God's word as I do with push-ups or yoga or whatever it is that people do now, you know. Imagine that. Paul was a, a giant of the faith, but a tiny, puny, physical specimen, you know, but a giant with God. In chapter 5, 
For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. You can almost feel him getting more happy as he's writing this, right? He probably didn't have a good morning. It's probably hard to get out of bed. But as he's writing to the Corinthians about, you know, coming to see them again and all this, and, and he gets start to thinking about heaven and, ah, with this dumb body I'm going to leave behind. This is exciting. And then I'm going to get this great body that God's made for me. Then my spirit's going to finally rest in a, a building made by God that's meant to last in eternity, not this temporary tent. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. Of course, he's going to give us a new set. He's not going to let us be disembodied spirits. We get a new body. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality maybe swallowed up by life. We don't want to just die and not exist. That's not what we're saying. We're saying we're ready to go on to the next phase, to the real world, to be with God. This whole world is temporary. It's been designed for us to live in for just a little bit to see if we'll choose God or not choose God. Everybody wonders, what's the meaning of life? Why are we here? Why are we existing? Why didn't we just get born into heaven? Because we never had a choice then. We'd never have an opportunity to love God from our hearts. We'd be obligated. And so here we sit for 100 years, 80 years, 50 years, 60 years. I don't know how long you're going to live or how long I'm going to live. But here we sit and we've got a choice and a decision to make. Everybody in this world does. We spend so much time focused on this tiny little place and blip into, you know, in our existence to make it as comfortable and as easy as possible for us. But all we should be concerned with is the choices we've been making for God each and every day, each and every moment, because that's what gets carried on into eternity. My body doesn't. My biceps don't. How fast I can run doesn't. Yes, be good stewards, of course. But remember, they're temporary things that you're being good stewards of. Eventually, they're going to be destroyed, and eventually you get your new body. And everything that you do down here gets carried over into heaven and will be examined at this judgment seat he's going to be talking about here in a minute. So we don't want to just die and not exist anymore. We want to be further clothed. That's what we're looking forward to. We're not suicidal. We're ready to move, you know. Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Paul's heart and his desire and longing to be with God in this new habitation is evidence that it's there. They're always looking for the eternal. They're always looking for the next phase. And he's trying to get them to understand that as well. Don't worry about your reputation and how your church looks. Be concerned with the heart's of the church, not the columns, you know. It's a kind of a, a difficult balance to find as a, as a pastor. What, how much comfort do you bring to the sheep that God's called you to provide for and take care of them? But what is ostentatious, you know? Now, does anybody remember the gray chairs in here, the silver and gray chairs? Is anybody sad that we got these brown chairs? I don't think anybody would be. They were hard to sit on. 
And as, as we tried to do the best we could with those for a while, I'm watching people unable to hear. And I know people have it worse other places, but I, I, I can't concern myself with that. I have to concern myself with the people. And I'm watching as I'm teaching, and people are like, you know, and they're, and they're not hearing a word because they're just so uncomfortable. You just see them just kind of spinning, you know, like this. I'm like, okay, we need new chairs, you know, and it's better. And people are able to, you know, so you get it. But you don't do certain things. You don't, you don't do the unnecessary. You know, we're trying to figure out how to, what do we do with this stage? Do we rebuild it? Do we do a new one? Because it's too squeaky. And, it's too, so, and the guy said, well, why don't we just put plywood over the top of it and tie it all together? Then it wouldn't move at all. So we're not building a new stage. We're just going to dump a bunch more plywood on this, make it about a half inch thicker and screw it and glue it. And it's going to be really solid. I don't know if that's frugal, foolish, or godly. I don't know what to call it, you know, but that's what we're doing, you know. And I'm not boasting. I'm saying I don't know. Um, it's, a, it's a tricky thing. And, and so, that being said, we want to maintain and do what we're supposed to do here for now but always keeping it in our minds that this is temporary and all going to vanish away eventually. So don't, don't put so much stock in it or value in it. It's just stuff to be used to further the gospel, you know, and to keep that balance. And that's what Paul's trying to get across to them. So he says in verse 6, we are always confident. Wouldn't that be nice to say? We are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Your death threats, basically, Paul says, don't bother us. We're encouraged by that. Really, today, you're going to send me to see the Lord? I've been waiting for that my whole life. Ever since I got saved, I've been waiting to be clothed with this new body. Is this the day you're going to send me there? It'll be up to God. It really isn't in your hands, but maybe God's going to use you today to bring me home to him. How exciting. That's not, that's not how it's, death threats are supposed to work. That's why they didn't work on Paul, and they don't work on believers. Believers get threatened with, we're going to torture you. Will it bring death? You people are crazy, you know? I'm just saying, and Paul's like that. Paul, Paul knows every single day he wakes up saying, as long as I'm in this body, I'm separated from God. And I know this every single day, that as soon as I'm separated from this body, I'm going to be present with God. So bring your best, you know. And so he goes out, and now you kind of wonder, no wonder he wants to go back into these towns after he gets, you know, stoned to death and raised up again, and he starts walking back through the gates. What's wrong with him? He's just trying to get to heaven. That's all he lives for. I can honestly say, unfortunately, that six through eight doesn't cross my mind every morning. I don't wake up saying, oh, I wonder if this is the day I get to be separated from my body and to be present with God. When, and I'm not, you always think about your family, you think about your kids, and, you know, and, and Paul had that same struggle to be absent from the body to be present with the Lord, but it's more needful for me to be here with you for now. So I understand while I'm still here, and I'm, I'm elaborating on his thoughts, but that's what he said. I know that it's better that I'm here with you now, but I'd really like to be with God. That was his struggle every day. And so I, that's where I want to be as a man. 
I want to be in that place where I want to be here as long as you need me here for my family and for those around me, as long as it's a benefit. But when I'm no longer a benefit and there's someone else to take my place, you can take me anytime you want to. It's all in your hands, God. And that's Paul's heart. It makes everything really small. It makes the things that cause me to stress out here in this world not stressful. And that's what Paul's trying to bring across. They may kill you for Christ's sake, and that should be a joyful thought to you. Because you'll be separated from this body and present with God. It really takes it all out, doesn't it? Verse 9, therefore, because of everything he's just said, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That word judgment seat in the Greek is bema seat. This is not the great white throne judgment. This is a different one. The great white throne judgment that we read about in Revelation is specifically designed for unbelievers. This judgment seat, this bema seat of Christ is completely different. The judgment seat, the white judgment seat is the judgment seat you think of at the courthouse with the judge who's going to sentence you for your crimes. The bema seat judgment seat is completely different. This is like an Olympic judging ceremony where you may get a two or you may get a 10 and you get your medals based off of that. That's this kind of judgment seat. So Paul says, whether we're absent or present with you, we want to be well-pleasing to him. In other words, we're shooting for a 10 because we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad, whether we fouled out or whether we landed it. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God. And I also trust uh, we are well known to, uh, in your conscience. I also trust are well known in your consciences. I hope you see us that way. Our motivation, though, is not your approval. Our motivation is God's approval. Our focus is not on whether we're going to get a 10 from you. Our focus is are we going to get a 10 from God? That's what motivates us each and every day. That's why we get up and do what we do. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. That's a bold thing to say to somebody. That's a bold thing. I don't know if we quite grasp that. For we do not commend ourselves again to you. We're not looking for your stamp of approval on our ministry. It's not even a consideration for us. What we are doing is giving you an opportunity to hitch your wagon to what God's doing with us. That's another way to put it. You can boast on our behalf or still feel the same way you feel about us. It makes no difference because God's called us to this ministry, so we're not commending ourselves. God's commended us. God's the one that's done that. We're giving you an opportunity to boast on our behalf. That you may, he's trying to switch their hearts, have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. We boast in heart. They boast in appearance. You have a choice to make. Are you going to boast, are you going to be on their wagon that boast in appearance and look good and have all the fancy schmancy stuff? Or are you going to boast in our hearts? We're giving you an opportunity again to hitch your wagon to ours again. Because they've unhitched. They've tried to distance themselves from Paul. Yeah, yeah, Paul, he's always in jail. It's kind of awkward that he's our founding father in the faith. It's kind of, mm, 
We've got new blood here, though, and they're much better. And look at them. I mean, they're shiny, you know. And Paul says, we're not trying to commend ourselves to you. We don't do that. We're giving you an opportunity to boast on our behalf. We're giving you an opportunity to say again, Paul's our founding father. Paul, a man who loved us, a man who gave uh, us everything and took nothing from us. A, a man whose heart is for us like children. A man who treats us like uh, a mother would treat their kids. He's like a hen. He was always there for us. He always uh, is looking out for us. And, and so much in love with us and for us that he wrote us the hard truth in 1 Corinthians. Paul says, I'm giving you an opportunity to boast in that. You know, We had, um, in grade school, you always had the, the good-looking moms. And kids knew it. When we were in third and fourth grade, we'd, we'd talk about the moms, you know, your mom. And you, didn't, you, didn't, you shouldn't say it to another kid, but you look at them and you say, your mom is so hot, you know. And the kid looks at you and says, my mom's not hot. You know, she is, you know. But she wasn't a good mom. You'd never trade her. You know what I mean? She may have been good looking, and you may have talked about that, joked about that as boys. Maybe you guys never did that. We did that at Clark you know, School in Sioux City, Iowa. We did that. But she never trade her because my mom's heart for me is amazing. She loves me, you know? She cares for me. I can't wait for this Mother's Day. I've got this message that's been burning on my heart for Mother's Day, and I just I want to give it now, and I can't. I've got to save it. But I had a mom who has... I have a mom. I shouldn't say I had. I have a mom, and at that time had a mom that would, I mean, make amazing sack lunches for me and would be there when I got home and would ask me about my day and would, whether I wanted to tell her or not, always there, always a hot breakfast, always pushing me to eat the oatmeal. You got to have it. Put brown sugar on it if you want it, but you need that for the day. Always caring for me. When I was in swimming and we'd have to go in the morning, for swimming, 6 a.m., we'd swim two and a half miles, and then 3.30 in the afternoon, another two and a half miles, every single day throughout the winter. I, I had, for breakfast, hot bran muffins with butter, sliced and butter stuck in there every single th- I mean, it was amazing. Great mom. Paul's simply saying that. I've been a really good father to you. I've given you everything you've needed, and I've given you more than these guys could ever do it. I've given you my heart. My love for you. I've, I've, this is how I feel. You can either go for these good-looking guys or you can boast in who I am and what I feel and how I've been taking care of you, you know? For if we are beside ourselves, Paul says, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. In other words, if we're crazy, it's because we're crazy for the Lord. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. So that... You don't have a crazy uncle, you know. For the love of Christ compels us. Because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all. That those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. That's what, that's what drives us. The love of Christ. Christ so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever should... Whoever should believe on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's what drives Paul. That's a big love, and he understood that. 
He let us crucify him. He didn't have to. He's God. I met him on the road, knocked me off my horse, blinded me until that guy laid hands on me, and I got filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a big Christ. At the time, I didn't know that. And now in hindsight, I look at that, and this person, this God come in the flesh with that kind of power allowed himself to be crucified for me? He didn't have to do that. Paul understood the love that Christ had for him, how he set down, how Jesus set down his deity and allowed himself to be crucified, be manhandled by the creation, you know? And Paul knew that. He says, it's the love of Christ that compels us. That's why we do what we do, not for gain. What more could we gain is the idea. What could you pay us that would make what Christ has done for us better, you know? Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that, Christ, uh, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Anybody that says that Jesus isn't God come in the flesh has not read that section of Scripture or doesn't understand it or doesn't want to believe it. Paul clearly says that God was in Christ, reconciling us to himself. God put himself on the cross instead of us. There must be justice, and yet there needs to be mercy. How do I accomplish this grace? I have to go to the cross instead of them. I have to die on behalf of them. I have to take the punishment that they deserve so that they can go free. And he did that. And we're new creations in Christ. We're not the old creation. We're not this broken, decaying creation that ate the fruit and the knowledge of good and evil. We're not that person anymore. We're a new creation. And God doesn't impute our trespasses to us. And on top of that, he's committed to us this ministry or this word of reconciliation. That's our ministry. That's what I share with people. That's what anybody should share with anybody about Jesus. My ministry is to reconcile people to God. I am not to put distance between them and God. I'm not there to make them feel further away from God. I cringe at those ministries. My whole ministry is to take them by the hand and to bring them to Jesus because that's what he wants me to do. I've been given no other authority, no other work of God. He's never called me to make sure everybody knows how far away they are from him. I have done, I want you to do one thing. Go into the highways and the byways and you grab them by the hand and you bring them to this wedding feast. Go get them, bring them to me. I don't have to worry about making them feel guilty. My ministry is not to make people feel horrible. My ministry is to bring them to the Lord, to reconcile them to God. The ministry and the word of reconciliation. That makes our, our, our calling, our ministry while we're still alive, really easy, doesn't it? That's why it's always called good news. God never says, now first give them bad news and then give them good news. He's never called us to that. The Holy Spirit convicts people of their need for Jesus, shows them their sin, shows them their... Our job is simply to be like the disciple who grabbed the other disciple and says, you come meet the man. Or the woman at the well, if you're female, come meet the man. 
that knew everything about me. Ministry of reconciliation, that's what we're called to. Now, then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's our message. That's what we tell everybody. As an ambassador of Christ, I wear the colors of heaven, the flag of heaven, whatever that may look like. I represent heaven. I'm an ambassador for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, I have the authority, you have the authority, and this is hard for us to grasp. We have the authority to speak Christ's heart to this world. It's huge. Every time I see, um, I want to say Nancy, it's not Nancy, it's Haley, Nikki Haley, at the UN as our ambassador. Oh, I get excited when it's her turn to talk on the microphone. And she shares exactly what our country stands for. That's all she has to do. And I love it. I just love watching her and, and, and speaking on behalf of me and our country and our president. President, center there on purpose. I want you to speak my heart to these people. In a much greater mission, we've been called ambassadors here on this world for Christ. Christ just says, all I want you to do when the microphone's in front of you is say my heart. Not your heart. Not your opinions on the matter. Not your thoughts. You're here to declare my truth. That's all we have to do. It's easy. Now, when we are ambassadors, now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul understood that. The, the righteousness that Paul sought out every single day as a part of the Sanhedrin, as a part of the Pharisees, one of the Pharisees, the righteousness he'd always hoped for, he just received from Christ. It was given to him. We've been given that righteousness. It's just there. When God looks at us, he sees God's righteousness. So, that's where we close tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement that Paul gives to the Corinthian church. He was excited to share this with them because he knows that whether they received it or not, whether they found it in their heart to begin to boast about him or not, made no difference. This was his work here on earth that you had called him to, was to say these things to even them. Those who didn't like him, those who wished he'd just go away, that his plaque would be removed off the wall of their church, that no one would remember that they were started by this Paul who's always in prison. They wanted to put a fresh face on their church with these new fancy teachers, with the bright, shiny whatevers. But Paul's ministry never changed. Whether hated or loved, he shared exactly what God's heart was for the people. It didn't matter whether they liked the vessel. It only mattered that they heard the message. God, I pray that we'd have that same heart, that same confidence that he had. That we'd have that confidence that the message we contain, the message you've given us to give, is truth, effective, and what every single person on this earth needs. Whether they know it or not, they need this. They need you. So Lord, help us to share this with those around us.
Every opportunity, the mic is in front of us. God, help us to be ambassadors for you and that we would say only your heart, only your message to them. Your Holy Spirit will do the rest. Your word does the rest. As as Josh prayed, it is alive and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to cut between the joint and the marrow, between the soul and the spirit. It is the sword of the spirit. And so if we want to affect people, all we have to do is share your word by the power of your Holy Spirit with them, and they'll be changed. So we thank you for that, God. Help us to fulfill our work as long as we're still here on this earth, as long as we're separated from you and we're in this body. Help us to spread your message, to give out your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.